Happy Thanksgiving, Dadages, friends and family, and welcome back to our episode focused on the Dadage. Extremists paint compromise as weakness because they know it is the only force strong enough to defeat them. Let's get right back to it. What are you thankful for this year? I'm thankful that you're all back here with me for the second half of this Thanksgiving episode covering current tragic events in the Middle East and the impact here at home in the United States. We spent much of the first half of the episode talking about the past and present of the Middle East. Today, we'll shift the focus to the home front. What's going wrong today here in America? What is pushing Americans toward extremism and away from centrism? I think we're facing three problems. The first problem is our two-party system. Obviously, this is nothing new. From the very origins of our country, there were Federalists who favored a stronger national government and Democratic Republicans who championed for the rights of states and individual liberties. These parties served the country well as critical debates were waged to iron out the key elements of our constitution and our system of government in the early years of our country. For the lifetimes of any of us participating in the discussion today, the United States has been principally governed by Republicans and Democrats. There have been pockets of leadership in, at the local, state, and occasionally federal level that have come from a third party or have been independent. But our presidents and the bulk of our national leaders have always aligned along two party lines. Today though, it seems that both parties are fracturing within themselves, and the Republican Party is ceding more and more control to the ultra-right, the Trump Republicans, also known as MAGA conservatives. This has been reflected in the election of the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, known as MAGA Mike, after McCarthy was removed by conservatives for the sin of compromising with Democrats to keep the government operating. More and more, the Democratic Party appears to be catering to the far left as well in order to shore up support within their party. This far left is embodied by the group that they refer to as the squad in Washington, D.C. The second problem is one of MAGA Republicans' favorite targets, but not for the reasons Trump is constantly attacking them, the media. I know this term is brandished as a weapon of criticism. I'm not applying it universally to say that a career in journalism is not a noble profession or to condemn anyone just for being a journalist. When I talk about the media, I'm more referring to the systematic evolution of mass media and the forces of capitalism that have driven that evolution. There was a time, not so long ago, that we Americans got our television news and brief summaries of the events of the day presented in one hour every night on three television networks. As news programs expanded in length to consume more and more advertising dollars, television reporters were joined by television commentators. Opinion was introduced as a staple of network news. Then things really changed with the advent of cable news and a series of dedicated news networks that catered to the pre-existing notions and political beliefs of different groups of viewers. Was this some conspiracy to spread what is now labeled as fake news when it doesn't conform to our own ideological perspective in the world? No, it was simple greed and profit motive. The newly formed cable news networks made their money by selling advertising, and they found people watched more frequently and longer when the news was feeding them information in a manner that most appealed to their own beliefs about the world. 
We as human beings like to hear more from people that agree with us than we do from people who disagree with us. Shocker. In a Time Magazine article published in September of 2023, the magazine credited Ted Turner, whom it also named as its Person of the Year back in 1991, as being one of the primary architects in creating the modern landscape of profit-driven media. The author, Catherine Kramer Brownell, who is a history professor at Purdue University, reports that Turner took advantage of the displeasure of millions of Americans across the ideological spectrum who were unhappy with the television landscape during the 1960s. The three big networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, exercised a monopoly over American screens. Enter cable television. Its backers sold the new technology as a way to enable excluded voices to shape news and entertainment shows. Crucially, they agreed that the route to more diversity was marketplace competition, which they defined as giving consumers the option to choose from an array of programming. Crucially, they argued that the route to more diversity was marketplace competition, which they defined as giving consumers the option to choose from an array of programming options. Over the next decades, cable pioneers embraced a very specific business model that chased niche audiences with the content they craved, ultimately transforming the very functioning of television news by tethering it metrics of the marketplace. On June 1st, 1980, CNN launched with a promise to deliver understanding and peace throughout the country and even the globe. In reality, Turner wanted to make money and found entrepreneurial ways to connect cable news to the business of cable television. And if we all thought cable news networks catering to the ideological silos that drove divides between us was as bad as things could get, it all got a lot worse. Social media was originally seen as a way to free information from corporate agenda and from influences seeking to disseminate false narratives. It became exactly the opposite. The like button, the retweet button, the thumbs up icon, all of these subtle, seemingly innocent tools evolved very quickly into mechanisms to inadvertently, and then later, quite intentionally, advance and accelerate the spread of skewed narratives shaped by individual opinions and perspectives. And then this entire framework was supercharged with algorithms designed to deliver exactly what each individual user wants to see, what will hold their attention longest, and what will elicit the most powerful reaction from them. This is the modern landscape of human-to-human -human communication, and it has supplanted most other forms of discourse. Social psychologist and NYU professor Jonathan Haidt published an article in 2022 entitled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> I love that title. I mean, let's call it as it is. Here's what he said. By 2013, social media had become a new game with dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment and their prediction of how others would react to each new action they took. One of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it had made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. As a social psychologist who studies emotion, morality, and politics, I saw this happening too. The newly tweaked platforms 
were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective sides. The volume of outrage was shocking. And here's what Professor Haight does a great job of bringing all this back to the understanding. Haight went on to say, as a social psychologist who studies emotion, morality, and politics, I saw this happening too. The newly tweaked platforms were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves. The volume of outrage was shocking. And here's where Professor Haight does a great job of bringing all of this back to understanding the impacts on our system of government. He goes on to explain this. It was just this kind of twitchy and explosive spread of anger that James Madison had tried to protect us from as he was drafting the U.S. Constitution. The framers of the Constitution were excellent social psychologists. They knew that democracy had an Achilles heel because it depended on the collective judgment of the people and democratic communities are subject to, quote, the turbulency and weakness of unruly passions, unquote. The key to designing a sustainable republic, therefore, was to build in mechanisms to slow things down, cool passions, require compromise, and give leaders some insulation from the mania of the moment while still holding them accountable to the people periodically on election day. These three forces, our two-party system, the evolution of a consumer-driven media marketplace, and the total integration of social media into our daily lives, have combined to undermine the structural integrity and function of our government. As Professor Jonathan Haidt shared, our government was not built to operate in a setting where every word of every sentence of every discussion or debate was exposed to the public and subject to public scrutiny. Democratically elected leaders are mentally held accountable on election day for the body of work they produce, not held accountable for every minute of every day in an expose of democracy by soundbite. I'm pretty sure our founding fathers said some pretty stupid shit behind closed doors as they were ironing out the framework of our government, but we don't judge them for incomplete and improperly vetted thoughts and emotional outbursts. All the public then or we today have access to is the outcomes of their work and healthy deliberation to arrive at proper democratic solutions to complex problems. This is the way democracies were designed to work, particularly our system in the United States. Don't take my word for it. Trust Condi. I sat down for a dinner with Dr. Condoleezza Rice, and the discussion turned to the Republican Party in the United States. Now, you all probably know Condi is the Secretary of State under W. Today, she is the director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford. She's one of the leading conservative minds in the United States. She's a professor of political science She's an astute constitutionalist, and she is one of the most truly brilliant individuals I've ever met. So I asked Condi, is the Republican Party in the United States broken beyond repair? And she responded by remarking, if you look at the choices being offered to us as voters, I'm afraid both of our political parties are broken. She went on to explain in detail how the Madisonian form of democracy practiced in the United States depends entirely on the ability for individuals to work through debate to achieve compromise. In the absence of compromise, our political system breaks down entirely. Given all I have described about the powerful structural forces and systems that are continuing to push us toward greater and greater polarization and away from any hope of compromise on any issue, you can see the reason for concern regarding the viability of our democracy and others around the world. Let's continue to look at this through the lens of social psychology, as introduced by Professor Haight. Here I'm going to turn back to the work of Dr. Goulston. In Dr. Goulston's book, Just Listen, he talks at some length about the concept of dissonance. 
In psychology, dissonance occurs at the individual level when what someone is experiencing or feeling internally does not align with their outside behavior. This can present a great challenge when taken in a social context because when the behavior of an individual is inconsistent with what they're actually thinking or feeling, it can drive a rift between them and other people. Essentially, people cannot relate to one another if they cannot understand one another. Not just their words and actions, but their actual underlying feelings and emotions. How does this relate in a societal context? This is where I'm introducing a new concept, systematic dissonance. What is systematic dissonance? Let's ask the originator of the term, me. What I refer to as systematic dissonance is the notion that has been introduced into our society that it's inappropriate and somehow even disrespectful to try to understand or relate to other people. Our culture of extremism and divisiveness is promoting dissonance. It is objectionable, even abhorrent today, to try to consider relating to an individual or a group on the other side of any issue. And it seems equally offensive to a group on the opposite side for you to try to relate to them and to meet them on common ground. If you try to see things the way another group sees them or relate to their perspective, that's almost viewed as a form of cultural appropriation. You don't have the right to try to understand my pain. You can't possibly understand or relate because you're not one of us. This notion seems so perverse, but take a moment to really think about it. And you can come up with lots of examples of this type of reactivity among groups of people. Generally speaking, some of the most common forms of dissonance are individuals responding with apparent anger, rage, and defensiveness when they are actually feeling alone, threatened, isolated, or unappreciated. So if we as emotional human beings in this new polarized framework that forbids mutual understanding are contending with feeling alone, threatened, isolated, or unappreciated, we're prone to respond with anger and rage. And in response, what will we receive from others? The same anger and rage. It's a vicious cycle. When you break down all of these powerful forces operating on us in our society every day and take them as the backdrop for what is happening on the world stage, it's no wonder that we're being torn apart from the inside out. So how is all of this playing out in the United States as it relates to the present Middle East conflict? Well, just about as you expect it to. Parties in our country were already aligned along polar ends of the spectrum based upon some of the factors we discussed earlier impacting the Middle East. A sophisticated proxy war of information being waged by Iran and others, a decolonization narrative being advanced regarding the Israeli presence in the Middle East, and a right-wing government in Israel declining in popular opinion worldwide. Then combine all of those factors with the domestic landscape based upon polarization on seemingly every issue, the siloed mass media infrastructure, and a social media ecosystem ready to explode with hatred at the lighting of a match on any controversial topic. What's that ticking noise I hear? A bomb ready to go off? Indeed. Let me pause here as well to introduce another topic that relates directly to domestic response here in the U.S., to the war in the Middle East. It's a topic we've covered a lot on, on Datages, the current climate around higher education in America. In an early episode of Datages, we discussed the most important thing to learn is learning itself. In that episode, I shared the true value of a liberal arts education to develop skills in critical thinking, problem solving, and working with others. I also introduce the heavy criticism that comes from some conservative circles that consider institutions of higher learning to be ivory towers controlled by the liberal elite. And in another episode of Datages, the third installment of 
responsibility is a luxury, accountability is the price you pay for it. I shared some examples of how the cancel culture has made its way into higher education and is challenging intellectual freedom and open academic discourse. In the wake of the acts of terror carried out by Hamas in Israel, institutions of higher education were thrust into the spotlight. As I said, such institutions are built on a foundation that supports free speech and open debate. Historically, colleges and universities have also provided a landscape that supports political demonstrations and protests on a variety of topics, particularly given the colonial framework that's been applied to Israel in a revisionist manner, as we discussed previously. There has been a significant base of support for the cause of the Palestinian people cultivated over recent years in an academic setting. As a result of these factors, there was a wave of pro-Palestinian demonstrations of varying size, intensity, and tone at educational institutions around the country. Many of these protests and other incidents that surrounded them took on anti-Semitic character, either subtly, remember the chants we discussed from the river to the sea, or quite overtly through the use of swastikas and other Nazi symbols, and in some cases even threats against Jewish students. Don't think that this is a one-sided problem either. There are also many reports as, of Islamophobia impacting Muslim students on college campuses. In this turbulent environment, university leaders were put into a challenging position with expectations placed upon them for rapid responses to protests and communications issued by various elements of students and faculty on, on college campuses. As with all of the societal issues we've been discussing today, there was seemingly no room left for compromise or middle ground. Pro-Israeli stakeholders around the U.S. called for a sweeping condemnation of what they saw as support for terrorism on campuses. Universities were asked not only to assure safety and protection of Jews on their campuses, which is certainly within their mandate, but also to provide a moral compass to reframe for their institutions and for our society as a whole, by extension, what is right and what is wrong and to communicate zero tolerance for messaging on campuses that could be construed as anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. Many pro-Palestinian stakeholders, meanwhile, adopted the position that Israel should be called out as colonizers, condemned for war crimes, and accused of genocide as their retaliatory military actions unfolded in Gaza. And such stakeholders wanted the right to broadcast these messages through their protests and communications on college campuses. Clearly, university leaders had been boxed into a lose-lose proposition. For me personally, this is where this entire situation we have been discussing became real and, and personal. While I'm certainly impacted by the tragic and horrific events in, in Israel and the loss of life and destruction being carried out in Gaza, and while I'm only one or two steps removed from individuals who have lost their lives and been driven from their homes in this horrific conflict, I'm personally involved in how this conflict is playing out here on the home front and particularly in the realm of higher education. I'm not seeking nor deserving of any sympathy in this regard, and frankly, I wouldn't choose to have it any other way. I'm simply pointing out the area of this complex subject in which I'm most involved and where I'm actually capable of having a direct impact. There's certainly nothing Chad Hagel is going to do to help solve the war itself. But here's a bit more personal background and an explanation of what I'm involved in and what I would like to share with all of you and the friends and family in the hopes that I can bring you some valuable insights. Okay, I was born a Jew, and as a Jew, I am a Zionist. As I explained to you before, that means that I support the idea of a Jewish state in Israel. That doesn't mean that I necessarily support the politics or actions of any particular party in Israel. Nor does it mean that I support war or the killing of the Palestinian people per se. I was also born an American, 
And as an American, I'm a patriot and I'm committed to free speech and the First Amendment. I believe the Constitution is a fundamental part of our identity and our ability to thrive as Americans. And finally, I am a staunch supporter of higher education and an activist volunteer leader in that space, as many of you know. I'm a firm believer that the institutions of research and higher education give us the best chance to save the world and to solve problems where governments of the world have failed us collectively. So in the midst of all of this conflict, I find myself in a bit of an identity crisis. Many Jewish leaders and philanthropists are turning their backs on higher education and pursuing a complete withdrawal of support due to the outrage and fallout from the polarized landscape I described in university settings around the nation. Some are totally abandoning engagement in education in favor of isolation. As a senior volunteer leader at Stanford, an ad advisor to senior faculty and administration of the university, I find myself directly involved in many of these issues. I face pressure from many of my Jewish friends and those Jewish constituents of Stanford University to apply influence at the university level to get the university to be that moral compass we talked about for our nation. As I described earlier in this, this discussion, by example, there's a public-facing petition generated by a group of Jewish Stanford alumni which gathered over 1,800 signatures and was submitted to the leadership of the university. It consisted of equal servings of condemnation and demands. I was asked, how can you as a Jew who lights the candles of your menorah and hangs a mezuzah on your door not sign your name to this petition? Exact words. My answer is really twofold. One, there were specific elements of the letter that I did not support, particularly those that waded into the waters of being unconstitutional. I'm too particular about my words and how I use them to ever let someone else write something and then sign my name to it for the public to see. I can't recall ever signing a petition. Two, I operate on the basis of personal relationships and direct engagement with key stakeholders who actually have the power to impact these major issues. To take to public channels and attach my name to letters of condemnation circulated to the media would terribly undermine and erode the trust I've built in such personal relationships. I would never do that. I have been in small group settings with the president of Stanford University deliberating these sensitive matters and weighing the moral, philosophical, and executive obligations of the university's administration. Here are some of the challenging considerations to balance. An institution of higher education must hold to the value of freedom of speech, as I've mentioned a couple of times now. I think this is one of the fundamental obligations of a university in order to create an environment in which it can fulfill its primary mission, the education and preparation of the future citizens and leaders of tomorrow. For a university to take a position on any particular issue, that position statement issued by the university implicitly creates what could either be viewed as a guardrail or a barrier to, to freedom of speech beyond the acceptable limits spelled out in the position statement of the university. By limiting debate and the navigation of these contentious issues at the level of the institution, a university would undermine the challenge laid at the feet of the students to navigate these treacherous waters themselves. Doing so deprives the students of some of the most valuable education they can receive in a college setting. Learning how to address difficult topics and resolve differences with others is far more valuable than anything students can learn in the classroom. Trying to hide students from conflicts destroys their ability to develop their own conflict resolution skills. Trying to dictate the direction of a moral compass prevents students from calibrating their own internal guidance systems. Any such actions taken by colleges and universities are the equivalent of institutional snowplow parenting. Trying to clear the way for our children so they never have to face adversity. The only result 
is leaving them incapable of handling adversity on their own. Ask our parents and grandparents who were in college in the Vietnam era, which was even more contentious and violent on campuses around the country than things are today. I imagine they would tell you that the moments of greatest conflict during their college experience were also the most formative in their lives. This whole debate on college campuses starts to get more complicated when you look at the continuum of speech. On one end of the spectrum, you have statements of facts, then opinions, then protest, then hate speech, then inciting to violence or harm. So where on that spectrum does the line get drawn? Let's focus on one element in particular that may be the most controversial and confusing, hate speech. Is hate speech allowed on college campuses? Let's ask a broader question first. Is hate speech permitted by the Constitution? The answer is yes. Hate speech is not only permitted by the First Amendment, it is firmly protected by it. In 1929, the Supreme Court ruled, quote, speech that demeans on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, disability, or any other similar ground is hateful. But the proudest boast of our free speech jurisprudence is that we protect the freedom to express the thought that we hate. This notion was reaffirmed in 2017 when the court struck down an anti-disparagement law as unconstitutional. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, quote, a law that can be directed against speech found offensive to some portion of the public can be turned against minority and dissenting views to the detriment of all. The First Amendment does not entrust that power to the government's benevolence. If we look to the Constitution as the barometer and weigh it against the spectrum I gave you earlier, as distasteful as it may seem, hate speech is allowed. And the only limitation on free speech is in cases where it is used to incite violence or harm. Can college campuses go further than that to crack down on hate speech? Perhaps in the case that they are private institutions and look to apply community guidelines. But someone could take any such rules and regulations all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they would likely win against any university that had such policies. And for those universities, like my alma mater, that find themselves in California, the situation is even more clear. As Stanford President Saller shared with me personally, Stanford, like every public or private educational institution in California, is bound by state law to protect freedom of speech. Here's a direct explanation from the Stanford website that explains the Leonard Law. And again, remember this applies to all educational institutions in California. As a protected constitutional right, speech may not be subject to discipline unless that speech rises to a legal standard of being unprotected. Even abhorrent speech is protected under the First Amendment and may not be subject to university discipline. What are some examples of unprotected speech? Speech that establishes a genuine physical threat toward a specific individual. While any form of hateful speech may feel threatening, only speech that communicates or incites a serious intent to harm is no longer protected under the First Amendment. This speech must be directed toward a particular individual or a group of specific individuals and does not include hyperbole, jest, or emotional rhetoric. In addition, the speaker must have the means, opportunity, and intent of carrying the threat out. Whether or not something constitutes a true threat requires a close examination of the intent and impact of the statement, as the same sentence said in different contexts 
would yield different results. For example, someone who flippantly says communists don't deserve to live in a group of people would not constitute a true threat. Or someone who points a weapon at a known Marxist while saying communists don't deserve to live would. Speech that meets a specific legal standard of harassment is not protected by the First Amendment. This goes far beyond offending someone. In higher education, speech must be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, and that so undermines and detracts from the victim's educational experience that the victim students are effectively denied equal access to an institution's resources and opportunities. Here, the speech must be targeted by the speaker toward a specific individual, unwelcome, discriminatory, and so serious that a reasonable person would find it materially limits participation in the educational experience. The threshold for this is incredibly high. That's what they had to say. So, while Stanford holds every student to what is referred to as the fundamental standard, which provides students are expected to respect and uphold the rights and dignity of others, regardless of personal characteristics or viewpoints, this is only an expectation, a goal, a value system that the university tries to promote and actively achieve. Ultimately, the university is legally barred from prohibiting any form of speech unless it falls under the very narrow definition of unprotected speech. If you really want to learn more or dive deep on this topic, we'll include a link in the Datages Bulletin Board to an informational video on California's Leonard Law. And here's another consideration. I said a few minutes ago, there's no such thing as a perfect decision. Every decision has both positive and negative consequences. Let's explore the direct negative consequences that could result from a university taking a more assertive step to crack down on hate speech in the midst of such polarized conflicts which are breeding and strengthening extremist positions. I want to cover two such potential negative consequences. First, I turn back to the work of Dr. Goulston, who recently published a blog post entitled, All Quiet on the University President's Front. In his analysis, Dr. Goulston explains the reluctance by university presidents to make stronger statements about the Israel-Hamas conflict in this way. There is an underlying reason many of us may be missing, the fear of provoking an irrational person into having an explosive response. Simply put, rational individuals are often fearful of provoking those who do not subscribe to reason. Irrationality is unpredictable. It doesn't follow the natural order of things, and when it manifests, it can spiral into wanton destruction and violence. So translating this to the university setting, it is not difficult to see why presidents might hesitate to address or condemn certain behaviors or expressions. Their silence, in many ways, is a survival mechanism, a way to prevent campuses from detonating into chaos. Second, let's explore the notion of establishing a dangerous precedent. Many universities have taken some steps to limit divisive protests on campuses. For example, some have prohibited outside organizations from holding protests on their private property, and others have banned masks or other means of concealing identity in order to hold individuals more accountable for words and actions. These seem like reasonable and universally beneficial steps to take. But in the state of Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis took it even further in the midst of today's conflicts by banning activist groups, Students for Justice in Palestine, from all public university campuses in the state. Was this a moral or ethical position taken by him? Likely no. It was likely catering to his political base, given that Florida boasts the highest enrollment of Jewish students per capita 
of any public school system in the country. But this perceived victory in Florida, touted by some Jews as a shining example of striking down anti-Semitism, may be a future defeat in disguise. What happens the next time Jews passionately protest something in public on college campuses and their viewpoints are considered contentious or unpopular? Will the same restrictions on free speech be applied to us? This is a very frightening slippery slope to me. So to say all of these are complex issues is the understatement of the century. I'm not qualified to offer the right answer in terms of establishing university policy, and I'm opposed to issuing demands to such institutions in the absence of detailed firsthand real-time involvement. I'll just restate the priorities expressed publicly by Stanford President Richard Saller, which I understand and support. One, Stanford's primary concern is for the safety of its faculty, staff, and students. Two, Stanford, as an institution, is against hatred on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, nation of origin, and other categories. Three, Stanford complies with state laws, including the Leonard Law. Four, Stanford advocates the fundamental standard while upholding legal obligations related to freedom of speech. Five, Stanford's commitment to academic freedom means that there will be latitude for the expression of controversial and even offensive views to avoid erosion of freedom of thoughts and ideas. Six, as a moral matter, Stanford condemns all terrorism and mass atrocities. That's where Stanford has landed. I think it is relatively aligned with Ivy League schools and other institutions of higher learning. I think I've shared enough for you to understand my opinions on these topics related to higher education and what's most important to me philosophically. Let's now focus a bit more on the responses to this controversy around the role of American universities in the war, particularly those coming from leaders in the Jewish community. Let's better understand the withdrawal and isolationism that I discussed earlier. I'd like to dig into these circumstances a bit deeper and share what I see as the current landscape and what I fear in terms of longer-term implications and consequences. There have been highly publicized withdrawals of financial support and engagement from prominent Jewish alumni in the days following the Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel, based upon a perception that university leaders did not act quickly enough and decisively enough to speak out in condemnation of the attacks and in full support of Israel. Here are a couple of examples that have touched me personally. I was contacted by a friend who's a Jewish alum of Harvard. He informed me of a newly formed Harvard College Jewish Alumni Association, which has formed in direct response to the perceived mishandling of the Hamas attacks on Israel by Harvard leaders. The newly formed association has issued an open letter to the president of Harvard and has adopted a policy stated on its website as the following, quote, until the university makes tangible strides, we will stand firm in withholding donations, unquote. I absolutely support the right of every individual to make their own decisions about how they invest their money professionally and philanthropically. But I worry about a couple of real challenges being introduced by this collective withdrawal. First, this is a nascent organization, the Harvard College Jewish Alumni Association. I doubt they yet have a system of bylaws, governance, organized communication, voting, and certainly don't yet have an established mode of operations within their organization. How and when can such a new and loosely coordinated, sizable group of individuals ever make the collective determination that, quote, tangible strides have been made to their satisfaction in order to turn that pipeline of critical university financial support back on? And second, as someone who spent decades in building nonprofit organizations and fundraising for them, I can assure you that giving is a habit and a culture. Once you break a good habit, it is hard to start it back up again. And once you tear a hole in the fabric of a culture of philanthropic giving, wow, 
Good luck trying to stitch that back together. I also listened to a podcast featuring prominent Jewish leaders in New York City following these incidents on college campuses, urging all Jews to withdraw financial support, withdraw their children, and look to invest in funding or even acquiring outright struggling liberal arts institutions and sending their children to be educated in a more Jewish-friendly environment. The outright anger in their voices was so strong that I can envision the rage emanating from their eyes as they spoke. To hear Jewish leaders attacking Ivy League institutions in particular, where which are some of the most fertile grounds for cultural, intellectual, and technological achievement in our world, absolutely crushed me. And to, to think of Jews in this country voluntarily and fervently advocating for self-imposed educational apartheid was even more shocking and saddening. I actually sobbed as I listened. To me, this represents the ultimate victory for Hamas. If these terrorists can erode our strongest and finest institutions in America and push Jews to retreat into isolationism, then the war has already been lost. And who steps in to fill the financial and leadership void that's left when the Jews retreat from U.S. higher education? I can tell you the answer, because it's already happening. In an article published just days ago in City Journal, which is a highly regarded urban policy publication, the author Joel Kotkin, who is an international authority on economic, political, and social trends, shared the following. Between 2014 and 2020, Muslim-majority countries together donated $4.86 billion to American higher educational institutions, representing 29% of all foreign donations. Qatar and Saudi Arabia were responsible for much of this largesse. The two countries together invested $3.7 billion in American higher education and were cumulatively responsible for 2,303 grants, gifts, and contracts, of which 422 exceeded a million dollars and 17 exceeded $50 million in value. Most of the largest gifts came from Qatar to Cornell and Carnegie Mellon. Qatar's role is particularly troubling since the country is often an ally to both Iran and Hamas. The country also backs other terrorist groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood, and is home to the most important Middle Eastern media outfit, Al Jazeera. Along with Saudi Arabia, Qatar is among the largest donors to Palestinian organizations and causes. If Jewish withdrawal and isolationism in higher education continues, the intellectual high ground may be ceded to the countries serving as the financial proxies for the very terrorist organizations that perpetrated the October 7th attacks in Israel. The leadership, financial support, and the young minds of these polarized populations, Muslims and Jews, will have found their silos, with the Arab-aligned parties arguably securing a superior silo in the Ivy Leagues. The Forum for Discourse, Reconciliation, and Centrism shall be destroyed altogether. And the primary victor out of all of this, that's simple, extremism. So what's the answer? I don't have a foolproof solution to these terribly complex issues, but I do have a few ideas and some places to start. One, take a breath. We did it together at the beginning of this episode. Do it again now. Encourage everyone you know to do so. If there's anything we can all agree on as human beings, it's breathing. Two, don't ignore, suppress, or circumvent powerful emotions. Embrace them. Experience them process them, and then get smart. Set the emotion aside as it doesn't serve you and embrace logical thought to navigate these complex questions. Three, be patient. A little patience goes a long way 
Be slow to judge and give the grace of time to people like university leaders who are contending with complex constituencies and perplexing competing objectives. Four, choose engagement. If you are a leader in the Jewish community, the Arab community, any community, and you want to make a difference, lean in. Don't run away. Five, look for common ground. Unfortunately, I think we've all forgotten it, but there's a lot more that makes all of us the same than there is stuff that makes us different. After all, we human beings share 99.9% of our genetic code with one another. This doesn't stop at biology. One of the other great conflicts of the 20th century outside of the Arab-Israeli conflict is the Cold War. There's a famous story about an emotional turning point in the negotiations to end the Cold War when Ronald Reagan depolarized the discussion by leaning into Gorbachev at a particularly tense moment and said three words, call me Ron. We could all use a call me Ron moment right now. Six, get in a room. I'm not saying get a room. That's a completely different topic. I'm saying to get in a room together with your fellow human beings when you find yourself in a moment of conflict. Remember the bonus adage I offered you a long time ago? When all else fails, just show up. This can be a big part of conflict resolution and maybe the answer to saving our democracy, our society, and all of human civilization. I've recently seen a great example of this. At my 25th reunion last month at Stanford, I attended a panel discussion entitled Restoring Democracy, which included, among other panelists, Larry Diamond, who is a senior fellow of global democracy at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and James Fishkin, who is professor of international communication and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute as well. As part of the discussion, they showcased a program they've organized called America in One Room. Through this program, which was run initially in 2020 and repeated a couple of times since then, the researchers brought 526 Americans to a single location to spend four days discussing the merits of five issues at the heart of American politics today. Healthcare, immigration, the economy, foreign policy, and the environment. They answered survey questions about their views on these topics and on the major party candidates running for president in 2020, both before and after their weekend of deliberation. Researchers selected a representative sample of Americans from vastly different ethnic, geographic, and socioeconomic groups to participate in America in one room. Overall, the share of those who participated in the event who felt that American democracy is working well rose from 30% before the event to 60% afterward. Participants also became less skeptical about the motivations of those with different political views. And 95% agreed that by participating, they had, quote, learned a lot about people very different from me. If you want to watch a video that will restore your faith in our country, give you hope for our democracy, and bring a tear to your eye, we published the CNN video on the bulletin board. So yes, I think there is hope but it is going to take an active commitment from all of us. Condoleezza Rice put it this way to wrap up that panel discussion. So yes, I think there is hope, but it's going to take an active commitment from all of us. Condoleezza Rice put it this way to wrap up that panel discussion.
And if you don't want to listen to Condi, then listen to Obama. Here's what he said recently on Pod Save America when talking specifically about the present crisis in the Middle East and how we as Americans should be working together toward conflict resolution at home and abroad. I would rather see you out there talking to people, including people who you disagree with. If you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side and listen to them and understand what they are talking about and not and not dismiss it because you can't save that child without their help not in this situation if and obviously our democracy and our world can no longer function effectively by getting people together in person all of america won't actually fit in one room so I believe we need to be investing in technologies that can be used to help us come together as human beings in a real way, rather than segregating us into pods where we're surrounded only by the most like-minded, pushing us further and further away from one another and toward polar extremes. Who's got the algorithm for that? Thanks for hanging with me through these two episodes. Thank you for being a part of the Datages friends and family. And a very happy Thanksgiving to you and your families. Now the real test. How do I pull a dad joke out of all of this? But if we can't laugh, we can't really live. So here we go. A dad joke about how not only all people, but all species on this planet are dependent upon one another for survival. What would bears be without bees? Ears. Think about that one. And then use that joke as a reminder to use your ears more often. Listen more, especially to your father. Because remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. 